Psalm 16 says, I will bless the Lord who counsels me. I always will let the Lord guide me because he is at my right hand. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise you, Lord, for sending us your Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us. Father, that you reveal the paths of life to us. Father, and in your presence is abundant joy, and we just praise your name for that. Father, as we move into the preaching of your word today, Father, I just pray, Lord, that, that you will accomplish in our hearts and minds today from, the, from your word what it is that you would have accomplished. Father, anything of me that you would discard that and it would be forgotten. So, Father, we dedicate our time to you today to hear from you, to see you more clearly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. And the children can be dismissed for Children's Church. All right. Thank you, Dale, for your communion message this morning. When you hear the words, Apollo 13, what comes to your mind? Some may be Tom Hanks, right, in the movie, right? How about Houston, we have a problem. Apollo 13, the movie, represents for us a real event in history where there were three astronauts where everything was going better than planned. They were supposed to be on Apollo 14. They were training, studying, they're preparing for the mission. NASA and their teams of people are building a spacecraft to send them to the moon. And then they're moved up to Apollo 13. Now they are going to be on the third lunar landing mission. Now, the crew is rather interesting. Two of them are backup crew members that have never flown a mission before, and yet Lovell, he had experience. He had three missions under his belt. He flew Apollo 18 as the first mission to circle the moon, and then he flew two other Gemini missions. But on April 11th, which April 11th is a good day, but in 1970 on April 11th, Apollo 13 launched. Things are just as expected. They're very routine. Things are moving along just as if they had trained and planned for. But one evening on April 13th, the crew is 200,000 miles from the earth and closing in on the moon. And then a mission controller sees a low-pressure warning signal on a hydrogen tank in the Odyssey. They follow a routine procedure to flip a switch and stir the tanks. Spacecraft shutters. The crew is startled. Alarm lights light up the control centers. And then we hear, as the whole world hears, heard, Houston, we have a problem. That fateful night, an, explo an exposed wire in the oxygen tank caused a fire and ultimately an explosion. The crew is now frantically trying to work through problem after problem, realizing 
they are not going to achieve their mission. They're not going to land on the moon, and now their mission has changed to one of survival, to figuring out how to bring them back home alive. How are they going to survive? They even need to fix this filter system, which is the equivalent of putting a square peg in a round hole and somehow using duct tape, they make this system work. So there are several accounts of the mission, one of them entitled, Houston, We Have a Problem, and it focuses on the stress of the ground crews during their crisis. Another is called From the Earth to the Moon, and it focuses on the television reporters who are on the ground monitoring everything. But then the most recent was Apollo 13 that focuses more on the crew and the shuttle and how the ground crew helped them to solve one problem after another. Things didn't go as planned for them. They had a failed mission. They failed to achieve the third landing on the moon. Forget the mission. Your plans have now changed. All their expectations were lost. Now their mission changed to one of survival. And they could as they come back to earth. I mean, they didn't know if the shield was cracked or not, whether they would burn up on reentry, or even if they could hit the right trajectory, or they would skip off into outer space. Then we have that famous three minutes of silence while the world hangs on the edge of their seats wondering, will they make it? Then the scene breaks into applause as they appear on the screen, and Houston can now see that they successfully have re-entered the Earth's atmosphere. They didn't burn up, and they are going to make it. What's interesting of a story as that is, contrast that with the disciples. They thought they had the tiger by the tail. They were with the Messiah. They are disciples of Him, the one who would redeem Israel. They see all these miracles, and they're, they're taught firsthand by Jesus for three years. They were with Him at the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And yet Jesus keeps telling them, He's going away. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is teaching them and He's preparing them and He tells them, it's better that I go so I can send you the counselor. They go to the garden and as customary, Jesus goes off to pray again. The disciples don't have the same intensity, though, that Jesus does. They fall asleep. Jesus wakes them up, and then he goes and prays again. Great drops of blood, one account says. The disciples fall asleep. Then all of a sudden, their whole world turns upside down. An army, along with Judas, come out to meet Jesus. There's a kiss, and Jesus is arrested. And immediately, the disciples become fearful and afraid. There are trials, ultimately the crucifixion. Jesus is dead and buried. The women go to anoint His body on the first day of the week, and it's gone. Others go to the tomb, and it's empty. And that sets the scene for our passage today. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 24, and as you're turning there, it seemed fitting to me as Pastor Aaron finished the Gospel of Mark last week, and we were left with an unfinished story. 
we were left with the disciples who had just seen the empty tomb and they were, they left there trembling and overwhelmed with astonishment and they were afraid. Luke chapter 24, starting with verse 36. As they were saying these things, he himself stood in their midst and he said to them, peace to you. But as they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost, he says, why are you troubled? And he asked them, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you can see I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate in their presence. So the first thing, though, that we find here is the reality of the risen Jesus. The ultimate evidence of the resurrection is Jesus standing before the disciples to reveal his scars, to invite them to touch him. He eats with them. How much more evidence do they need? But Jesus, when he appears, he finds the disciples terrified, wondering if he's a ghost. They're frightened. Are we seeing a spirit? Jesus says, peace. Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Don't you believe your own eyes? I mean, don't you trust your own reason? He's giving them these statements that are challenging their hearts. Look at the scars. Touch them. I'm physically here. I'm not a spirit. I'm not a ghost. This is not a psychic manifestation. Don't you trust your senses? Don't you remember what I told you? Verse 41 tells us that while they were amazed, they were still in disbelief. And although Luke is emphasizing for us the bodily resurrection and that the proof now is right in front of them, take note that in this passage, his appearance is not what leads them to faith. For the disciples, real belief come through Jesus' word. And Jesus now begins to speak to them just as he had done before the two on the road to Emmaus about the scriptures and he prophesied. So even though we have the reality of the risen Jesus there, the second point is we have the reality of the Scriptures that changes, <clears throat> from, changes them from doubts to confidence in the truth of the resurrection. So in verses 44 and 45, he says, He told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, the reality of the Scriptures. Jesus teaches them the ultimate Bible study, and he opens their eyes. Verse 44, he reminds them that these are the words I spoke to you while I was with you. He is physically in their presence, reminding them he taught them while he was with them. That fact gives evidence that he's the same Jesus who was with them for three years. He prophesied himself that he would be killed and on the third day be raised. 
The reality of what they just saw in current events before their eyes is now standing right there. And so we know from our series in Mark that they were not expecting the resurrection. We even see that in the Emmaus disciples earlier in the chapter, where these two disciples are walking to Emmaus, they're discussing and arguing the events that have just occurred over the last three days. Jesus comes alongside them and asks them what their dispute is all about. And they seem incredulous, saying, don't you know about the events that have occurred concerning Jesus of Nazareth? And they testify to the death and crucifixion. They even say, we were hoping this Jesus of Nazareth was going to redeem Israel. And they even testify that on the third day, the women find the tomb empty and others went and viewed it and they didn't see him in the tomb either. Again, they're not expecting the resurrection or they wouldn't have been discouraged by these events. Back up to verse 25. Jesus has just come up to the Emmaus disciples and He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter His glory How foolish you are and slow to believe. He tells them they're foolish for not understanding. Even though they were questioning Jesus, thinking He didn't seem to know what had taken place, Jesus points to the fact that they should understand the history of what just occurred in light of the predictions of Scripture. Jesus questions them saying, was it not necessary for the Christ, for the Messiah to suffer and then enter His glory? And then we have the the very first ultimate Bible study after His resurrection in verse 27, where He says, Then beginning with Moses and the prophets, He interpreted for them things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. He interpreted for them. He taught them beginning with Moses and the prophets. He teaches them all these things concerning Himself. He explains to them, the theology of the Scriptures about Him, the Messianic mission that they should have understood. We get to verse 31, and they're breaking bread, and their eyes, He breaks bread with them, and their eyes are opened, and they recognize Him, but immediately He disappears. Within the hour, it says, these two disciples go back to Jerusalem, to where the eleven disciples are, to announce He has risen. The Lord has truly been raised. They've just been taught by the resurrected Christ. They've literally, physically seen Him. And that brings us to 36, where we were. While they were saying these things, Jesus stands in their midst, and He now appears to them all. And that's where we have the second ultimate Bible study. That Jesus affirms that this is what I spoke to you while I was with you, tells them everything that I've written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms had to be fulfilled. He teaches them how the Scripture spoke of His crucifixion and resurrection, opening their minds to understanding the Scriptures. And I think it's significant that Jesus has just authenticated the majority of the Old Testament, testifying to the fact that they point to Him and His mission. They prophesied of these events. He told them about these events while He was with them. And now the resurrected Lord is revealing the truth of Scriptures with them. 
He could have talked about Psalm 22. Maybe he spoke of Psalm 23 and said, I am the good shepherd. Maybe he spoke to them about Isaiah 7:14 or 9, 6, and 7, or chapter 11, or Isaiah 53, or Micah 5:2, Deuteronomy 18, Zechariah 9:9, 9, 9, or 10:4, or Isaiah 49:6, that he would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. There are nearly 400 prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus. So don't let anyone tell you that the Old Testament is old, that it doesn't matter. Well, we have two events right here where Jesus teaches the ultimate Bible study, revealing what the Scriptures taught about Him as the Messiah. Both times He teaches them His Word and He opens their minds to understand the Scriptures concerning Him. The truth of God's Word has to be revealed to you. Now, I've known of people that have read God's Word regularly. I had one, one teacher. She loved to read the Psalms and the Proverbs for its poetic nature. She was lost as a goose and had no clue what it meant. My son-in-law, he was raised a Catholic. He was taught in Catholic school. He knew lots about the Bible. Yet, until a year and a half ago when he gave his life to the Lord... He finally understood so much. It amazed me. It amazed me that I could sit down like I was having a Bible study with you and talk to him about the Word of God. I just couldn't believe how much he now understood of the Bible. That only happened because God opened his eyes. When he repented, and receive forgiveness of sins. In this passage, though, it was not through reason and evidence, but rather it was through God's Word that Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scripture. It was through the Scripture that they came to understand that it was divine plan that the Messiah had to suffer and had to be raised, that it was all according to the divine plan of redemption. So not only do we have the fact that Jesus is physically with them, the reality of the risen Lord, standing there eating with them, and then Him testifying to the truth of the Old Testament, the reality of the fulfilled Scriptures. Our third point is we have the reality of the ongoing mission. Verses 46 through 48. He also said to them, this is what is written, the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Verse 47, He declared to them that they have this ongoing mission of proclamation. They are to proclaim repentance for forgiveness of sins. They are to proclaim this in His name, meaning that it is only through repentance and only Jesus can forgive you of your sins because He is the Christ. They are witnesses of these things. They can't refuse what they saw. They can't ignore it. They're witnesses. A witness has knowledge. A witness can confirm something. They can bear witness 
They can testify to the truth. As a witness, they are to proclaim Jesus is the Christ who forgives sins. The proclamation of the gospel is in his name, in the name of Jesus, because there is no other name under heaven by which one must be saved. It's only in Jesus Christ that we receive forgiveness of sins. It's only through him that it's even possible. So not only that, you are to proclaim it to all the nations, he tells them, beginning in Jerusalem, that the mission begins right where you are. And the ongoing mission until Jesus returns is to go and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone, to all nations. So can you imagine what these disciples might be going through? In the last few days, they were emotionally discouraged. They were disappointed. Likely, they're depressed. Their dreams have been crushed. Their hopes destroyed. They were brokenhearted. Their plans shattered. Life had just lost its meaning, its direction. And now the Lord Jesus Christ shows up and says, peace to you. And they receive the ultimate Bible study when Jesus reveals the gospel message by reminding them of what he said when he was with them, as well as revelation of Scripture. And he affirms what the Scripture says, affirming that the Messiah would suffer and rise again. Their hopes and dreams have been crushed, and now they've received the mission of their lives. The scope of their mission is now to proclaim the gospel message to all the world. And now as witnesses, they are the instruments for the gospel mission to go forth. Disciples are now called to be the, the instruments for the proclamation of the gospel. Where just a few minutes before all hope was lost and Jesus shows up, and now they have the mission of their lives to be the evangelists to proclaim the gospel. And by extension... This is the same message for all believers. Everyone who claims Jesus, who believes that Jesus died and rose again, you are given the mission to be his ambassadors, to be his instruments to go forth to all the nations. Verse 48 tells them, you are witnesses of these things. Everyone who claims the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is a witness. Now, you may be a good witness, you may be a not-so-good witness. The reality is, you are a witness. That's just how it is. You may try to hide it, but you can't avoid it. Whatever you do in this life is a testimony to the unbelieving world if you are claiming Christ. We all have this same mission as disciples. Because this is the mission of the church. The Jesus missionary strategy is to use his followers to be the missionaries who proclaim Jesus Christ wherever you go. Now, this doesn't mean, say this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean that it only happens in worship service, doesn't mean that it only happens in the sanctuary, because the mission begins in your Jerusalem, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your city, and out into all the world. Nowhere does it say the mission is for the pastor only or in the sanctuary only. The mission is for all who claim Jesus as Lord, and that is the reality of the mission. 
The reality is we are all to be missionaries when we leave these four walls. When you leave here today, you are entering your mission field. What kind of witness will you be? What kind of witness will you be to your family, to your neighbors, to your friends? We are to be the hands and feet of Jesus to carry on the mission that He modeled for us. And God's purpose in sending Jesus, according to Mark, was not to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. Luke says He came to seek and to save the lost. The good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep has now commissioned his followers to do the same. We are to serve others and lay down our lives for the sake of proclaiming the gospel. You are a messenger from God, commissioned by Him, given a message to proclaim that forgiveness of sins is found in Jesus. We have the reality of the risen Lord, the reality of the Scriptures, the reality of the mission. Next, we have the reality of the promise. Verses 49, he says, and look, I am sending you what my father promised. But as for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. Then he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple praising God. He said, I am sending you what the Father promised. It's in fulfillment of what Jesus said in John 16. It's to your advantage that I go so I can send the Holy Spirit, the helper to you. He'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness. He is the spirit of truth. He will guide you in all truth. He will not speak on his own, but whatever he hears from the Father, he will speak because he will glorify me. The expansion of the kingdom can now grow exponentially because of the that indwells believers. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to manifest the active presence of God in the world and especially through the church. The Holy Spirit is a blessing of God for all believers, and He brings God's blessing upon believers in all sorts of ways. He empowers us. He purifies us. He reveals truth to us. He reflects the pleasure or displeasure of God. He gives life and regeneration. He gives us power for service. He protects God's people from the enemy. He gives the gifts of the Spirit. He produces growth and holiness. Our sanctification comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. He reveals God's presence to us. He bears witness with our spirit. He guides, directs. He gives us assurance. He teaches us. He reveals to us all things concerning what God has prepared for us. The Spirit of God indwelling in us. He empowers us to complete His mission. So along with this promise is the instruction to wait until they are empowered from on high. And then Jesus then blesses them and He ascends to heaven. And at this point, Scripture tells us that they worshiped Him and they were filled with great joy and they were continually praising God. What a change from having your dreams crashed to fear and bewilderment to worshiping and praising God. 
The disciples' mission has now changed, and they are now the instruments to proclaim to all the nations the gospel message that Jesus forgives sins for those who repent. We have that same mission. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are to plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We are the light of the world, the messengers of the good news to share Christ to the whole world. So when you surrender yourself to Jesus, you have a new mission to testify, to be a witness of Jesus. And he promises to empower us through the Holy Spirit to be his witness, that we may go, that we can be his witness wherever we go. But Luke, he wrote the gospel of Luke. He also wrote Acts. And uh, turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 1. So it's, it tells us that Luke wrote the gospel about all that Jesus began to do until, and teach until the ascension. But he also wrote Acts, which is, details the Acts of the Apostles, the spread of the gospel to, to the nations. And in Acts 1, he summarizes us some of the very same points, and we're just going to touch on it as a summary. Verses 2 and 3, until that day he was taken up, he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So regarding the reality of the risen Jesus, verses 2 and 3 tells us he gave instructions. He presented himself to the apostles with many convincing proofs, appearing to them over 40 days. Regarding the reality of the Scripture, the last part of the verse, he speak, continues to speak to them about the kingdom of God. He gave them instructions. Regarding the reality of the mission, verse 8 which is a very popular verse we all know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the end of the earth. Regarding the reality of the promise, the end of verse 4, Jesus reminds them how they had heard about him. They had heard about John's baptism with water, and now they're going to be baptized with the Spirit that it is by the Spirit that they will receive power to be His witnesses. And just like in Luke, we see Him giving them instructions to wait. Stay in the city until they're empowered from high, from on high. And here in verse 4, He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And then we have the ascension where He is taken up. He's just revealed Himself to them. He's taught them from the Scriptures. He opened their eyes. He gives them this renewed mission, and He tells them to wait. And this is where, in my study this week, I really found it very interesting. What's interesting to me is, like Luke tells us, they worshiped Him with great joy, and they were continually in the temple praising God. And I realized what Scripture doesn't say is, he didn't reveal them what to do while they waited. He just told them to wait. Now, I read in verse 14 of Acts, all the disciples are together, Mary, the mother of Jesus, even Jesus' brothers are there, and it says they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. I find it interesting 
It's not recorded that He instructed them to get together and pray while they waited. And the idea of to continually mean, is, means to endure, to steadfastly, to cleave faithfully in prayer together. And it dawned on me, well, of course they would. Prayer is part of worship. Prayer is part of praising God. Not only that, Jesus modeled it for them while He was with them. They witnessed time and time again Jesus praying. So now naturally they become devoted to prayer. They're now transformed from falling asleep during prayer to being continually devoted, continually united in prayer, waiting on the Lord. The resurrected Jesus physically appears to the disciples. He opens their eyes to what the Scriptures proclaim must be fulfilled in Him. He commissions them. They follow His example of prayer. Prayer precedes all major movements of God. We see that in Jesus' life. Prior to any work of God that we see in there, we find Jesus praying. Throughout history, history of revivals that have swept the land that were all preceded by prayer, the businessman's revival started with a prayer meeting. The haystack prayer meeting that launched the missionary movement from the United States into foreign lands. So we find it's a natural thing for them to gather together and pray. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit within us, but how will we ever experience the power of the Spirit if we don't humble ourselves in prayer and listen to His leading in our lives? Are you praying for the harvest? Are you praying for your family, your friends, your neighbors to come to know Jesus? To hear the gospel proclaimed? Maybe we don't see power in evangelism because we don't first spend time waiting on the Lord. Praying for His strength, for boldness, for courage, to testify to the one that we worship. So this brings us to the big idea today. You are missionaries of the gospel. That's it. Wherever you go, you are missionaries. You are sent by God. He has given us His power to be witnesses, to be His witnesses. Will we dare be obedient? What kind of witness are you? Are you a powerful, confident witness, or are you a witness that tries to hide it? And speaking of prayer, I just want to remind you of a couple things that Wayne announced to us at the beginning, that Wednesdays at noon, we're going to have prayer for 45 minutes here in the sanctuary, and also this particular week is our fresh encounter over in the Commons prayer room at 7 p.m., So those are a couple opportunities you have to gather together and pray with one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise you. Lord, we would not have dreamed up this plan ourselves. Only you could have done that. Just as only in Jesus could it be fulfilled. And Father, only in the giving of the Holy Spirit, do we have any power or strength to do anything? So, Father, we surrender ourselves to you. 
We thank you for salvation and forgiveness. Father, we ask that you would guide us and empower us, give us wisdom, give us boldness, give us courage to tell others about you who so desperately need to hear it. Father, help us to be the sanctified witnesses in our daily life that you would have us to be. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.